Go ahead and grab a seat. So I actually have the honor to start a brand new series today that we're going to be talking about through the month of July, uh, and it is called Women in the Bible. And I think I'm the perfect person, right? No, I, no I'm kidding. I'm the absolute <laughs> worst. Uh, no, I'm sure I'll get uh, some emails from some women in our church going, I can't believe you said that. Uh, but no. Uh, but we, we really wanted to do a focus on women... Uh, characters, women within the Bible, that some that are well famous and some that maybe you haven't even heard of before, uh, because we believe that women, women bring a different aspect. They, they bring different stories. They bring different testimonies. They, they have a different aspect on, on how their relationship uh, functions with God. And so we, if we don't study women within the Bible, if we don't see the characteristics shine through, we're missing out on this whole side of God. And so we believe that this series is important. So listen up, please. Um, women have some powerful attributes, and they're way different uh, than men. And, and so today we're going to be looking at the story of Esther, one of probably the most famous women. It's a whole book uh, written after Esther, the, the whole story. Um, but before we even get there, we, we kind of go back to Genesis 1, that God created a suitable partner for man, if you ever kind of thought about it, if, if women were created first, would that be needed, right? Would, would women actually need a suitable partner? Some people think probably not. Women probably would have been just fine on their own, but man needed a, a partner. And so there was actually a study done at the University of Michigan. This is very interesting. Uh, just on the, the different attributes between men and women, where they took 10-year-old boys and 10-year-old girls, and, and really they were kind of examining the, the decision-making process. And what they did was they had one 10-year-old boy and one 10-year-old girl, and they had the decision, you know, they, they put a challenge and decision-making process in front of them. And what they discovered is that, you know, the female did better than the male. And so as the study went on, they added an, another 10-year-old uh, boy and another 10-year-old female, and what they discovered was the boys did slightly better and the, and the, the females did slightly better. And then they added in a third, uh, a third person, so three, three 10-year-old boys and three 10-year-old uh, females. And, and what they discovered was that the females did slightly better than what they did with one, two, and at three, they were, they were better. And then when they added the third boy, they found that they drastically decreased. And they found that as they kept adding more and more, the females kept going, the boys drastically decreased. And it kind of shows you uh, just how boy, uh, women and men are kind of have different attributes. They're, they're, there's different within that, and it's just uh, very unique. God has very unique roles for men and very unique roles uh, for women. Now, I'm married. I've uh, been newly married, nothing to brag about. For about eight months, we made a baby. Uh, but we're eight months married, and I'm still learning this whole living with a, a woman thing. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, but one of the things is it can be very stretching um, for me. Now, I'm not talking about it's, I'm tolerating Leah, like just having her, her around. In fact, it's more like she's tolerating me. Uh, because what I found out that when you're, especially when you let someone that close into your life, uh, your flaws become magnified. Who you are and all the flaws, and, and of course, I don't really have any. No, but the, all the flaws become magnified. Everything becomes obvious, and, it is, and it's just kind of this 
this uh, blessing on you because ultimately we, we make e- each other better. And I believe it's kind of like that when we study women in the Bible. It can be stretching because a lot of times we, we focus on, on the stories of David, Paul, or Abraham. But when we actually studied about some of the characters uh, that are female, we can actually become stretched. We can become like, oh, I'm, I'm not like that. We get a whole different perspective. So Esther is a great perspective uh, on really how amazing God is. So we have to do a quick history lesson. Maybe most of you already know this, but just kind of how we get to Esther. Because if you don't know the backstory, you don't know why she is put in the situation that she is. Now, God made Abraham into a great nation. That's kind of where we're going to start. And, and through the time, Israel became slaves to Egypt. And there's a, you know, you can go through and read the whole Bible uh, and kind of get that. But they were slaves to Egypt for 400 years. And then God used Moses to redeem them, to bring them out of Egypt. And then God took them to the promised land where the people got scared. They didn't trust God. And they wandered the desert for 40 years. Then Joshua was put in the leadership. Joshua took Israel and took them to the promised land. And then you had some judges in there. uh, And God raised up different people to deliver Israel from their enemies. Uh, And then then Israel begged for a king. And God gave them Saul, who was a horrible king. And then David, God gave them David, David, who was a great king. And then King Solomon came into the picture. And then the nation split into two kingdoms. And you had Israel and Judea. And then you see a pattern of good and bad kings going back and forth. And then, ultimately, uh, God judges each kingdom because of the wickedness that he kind of saw within them. And he uses the Babylonians King Nebuchadnezzar, to take over Israel, to destroy the kingdoms, basically destroy every brick uh, that they ever had, and carry away some of the children, women, some of the, you know, the promising men into slavery. And then you have the Babylonian kingdom that was taken over by the Persians. They came in, they, this other Persians and the Medes rose up uh, as a great mighty kingdom, and they came in and took over them. And that's kind of where we're left. We're in this Israel where they're in this weird state where they were slaves to the Babylonians. Now they're slaves to the Persians. uh, And the Jewish people are kind of just a part of this weird rising kingdom empire, the Persian Empire. And, And after many kings and many years, they find themselves under the rule of this king called King Xerxes. If you ever seen the movie 300, they kind of, uh, kind of display him as the mighty king. I mean, it's like a 15-year-old movie, but uh, if you've ever seen it. They, they, and then kind of brings us to this book of Esther. Now, Esther is one of the most unique books in the Bible. It's 10 chapters. It's kind of uh, placed right in the middle, right before Psalms, all that kind of good stuff. But there's very unique for a couple reasons. One, uh, it is the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned. God is never mentioned in this whole book and two, in the whole book of the, uh, out of the whole book of the Bible, it doesn't have any form of prayer. There's no prayer. The closest thing that you get is kind of like the culture. Uh, they talk about the Jewish culture uh, and laws that, that the, the Jews kind of abide by, but that's the closest mention uh, of anything to do with God. God seems absent in this book. 
that he isn't around, that he kind of left his people, Israel, to fend for themselves. Because back then, really, uh, the way that they viewed gods back then were way uh, different than kind of how we see today. They saw true gods, real gods, as gods who allowed their nation to thrive. That if you had a thriving nation, then your God was on your side, that your God was real, that no doubt that, that he was there fighting for you. And so you look at this Israel nation, that they're in slavery, that they were taken over by two different kingdoms, and you kind of see their God as powerless. You see their God as basically doing nothing. Sometimes, if we're honest, we can kind of relate to that, right? We kind of feel like Israel. We kind of feel like God is absent. God is not around. He's not mentioned at all. I don't see his blessings. I don't see how he's working things out for the good in my life. And sometimes we find ourselves in that Israel nation where we feel beaten up, destroyed, just kind of let down, just sitting there. And sometimes God might not be seen, but he is not absent. He might not be heard, but he is carrying out his will. He might not even be felt, but he is still moving. And that is exactly what I think the book of Esther tells us without mentioning him at all. Now, today as we read the book of Esther, I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to be actually be skipping around a ton. So if you are following, I'm very sorry because it's probably going to be confusing because the book of Esther is really written as a story. It's written as something that people historically uh, would read as a story that they would look back on and, and kind of ultimately come to this place of, wow, look how God kind of moved. Look how God redeemed his people. And that's where we should fall today. We should be in this place of awe. We should be in this place of worship from how the way God moved and interweaved his plans so as we read this story, I'm going to read out the NLT today just because it reads a little bit smoother. Uh, and Esther, like I said, is 10 chapters, but we're going to be skipping around a lot. We won't even finish the whole book of Esther. So I, I, I just encourage you, go through, after you've heard today, read the book of Esther um, with the new kind of hopefully insight that you have uh, today. But there, really, we're going to be talking about four main characters just to kind of start it off. The first is Esther. She is a Jewish descent, and you need to know this, she is absolutely gorgeous. Esther is drop-dead beautiful, and that is a very known characteristic within this book. So you have Esther, and then you have Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's uncle. He's also of Jewish descent. Uh, Esther's parents died, and Mordecai became kind of her father. And then you have this guy named Haman. Haman, he is King Xerxes' right-hand person. He is what they would say a noble person, but not only just a noble person, he was the highest ranking noble person. And so he, he you know, King Xerxes, he had King Xerxes ears, we would like to say. He could say things and, and, and King Xerxes would show him favor. And then you have King Xerxes. He is the current king at this time. He is the most powerful and the most resourceful person in the world. Think about that, the most powerful and the most 
resourceful person in the world at that time. We're going to start off in chapter 1, uh, verse 2, uh, 2 through 4. And like I said, I'm going to be skipping around. So it says, At the time Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Medes, as well as the princes and nobles of all the providence. The celebration lasted 180 days, a tremendous display of his wealth, of his empire, and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. So he throws this giant party for all his close officials for 180 days. And then if you keep reading through the chapter, it describes that he had all these gold glasses that each one was different. Kind of showing his, what, he was, what he was able to do. They describe his linens that he had. They kind of build this guy up to show how arrogant and how unhumble he is. Like, he is just, he's there. He has everything, anything and everything he wanted. He threw a party for 180 days. It's crazy. Then he does something different. After that 180-day banquet, he throws another party for seven days for the whole kind of city. Now, imagine if Mylan just threw a seven-day party, all you can eat, all you can drink for seven straight days. This is what we're talking about. This is the type of king showing his kind of power, everything, the unlimited resources. Because sometimes we read this book of Esther and we can be like, oh, King Xerxes, he wasn't that bad of a king. No, he was horrible. He was horrible. Picture this in your head. Picture some people that that you could think that already have a little bit of power in this, in this world right now and now give them unlimited money and unlimited resources. Think about how much their attributes come out of who they are as a person. King Xerxes was a bad dude. He was ruthless. He'd kill anyone, didn't really care because he was king. And we kind of see that what happens. It says this in verse 10 of that chapter. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of wine, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him to bring Queen Vashti to him with a royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty. Now picture this. The whole city's partying. Seventh day, King Xerxes in high spirits, as they described, and he wants his king to come out, or his queen to come out, to show her off to everyone in the city. And what happens is this, uh, he wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she is the most beautiful woman, but when they conveyed the king's order to the queen, she refused to come. And this made the king furious, and he burned with anger. So as the, fa- the band Foreigner would say, he was seeing double vision. He was like gone, right? Uh, I mean, this guy likes to party, all right? He was a complete pig for what he was asking the queen to do. There's some things where you can read in between the lines what he's really asking the queen to do with just wearing the crown and for everyone in the city to come and gaze. He was not a good dude. So what he does is that the queen says no and the king goes, fine, he, he's still seventh day. He goes, listen, you're no longer, I, I write a decree that you can no longer be the queen and you can no longer be in my presence and it's over. And he bans her. This is my favorite part though. It says, but after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about the queen and what she had done and the decree that he had made. Here's what happened. 
He sobers up and he goes, oh man, what did I do? Like that type of reaction. He sobers up and, he, and he's like, the people that made the re- re- recommendation, the nobles that were around him probably were pretty scared. Like, oh, we recommended that you do this. And, and he wrote the decree. And if you know anything about when kings wrote a decree, they could not be overturned. They had to happen. He couldn't do anything about it. And so what they come up, they go, okay, listen, listen, this is what you should do. You should search for a new queen. And they kind of like, you should find someone even more beautiful. We'll search the whole kingdom. It'll be a great time. We'll, you know, take our time. We'll make them beautiful. And we'll find you a new queen. And the king, of course, loves to, you know, very unhumble, very arrogant, goes, yeah, it's a great idea. And so he agrees. And then we find ourselves in chapter 2 where we're introduced to Esther. It says this. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's Harlem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids, specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the best place in, uh, in the harem. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background, because Mordecai, that's her uncle, had directed her not to do so. Every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Esther is this young woman. Here's another crazy thing. Esther, still a teenager. She's probably below 20 for sure. We don't know exactly her age, but she's definitely a teenager, and she was beautiful. And she stood above all the rest, and God allowed her, her beauty to be used for his people. It's amazing how God works. Sometimes he uses a, talk, a talking donkey to accomplish his goals or someone's looks. There's nothing that can stop God's plans. That God's will will always be done. That he is the most creative God and will use extraordinary ways to proclaim his power. And we keep reading in verse 16, Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any other young woman. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal royal crown on her head and declared that she was queen. So Esther gets made queen. The unthinkable happens. We went through the history a little bit. This, uh, this girl, this teenage girl of Jewish descent is sitting as queen. And you kind of go, wow, that's really cool how God kind of moved. Now we moved into this guy named Mordecai. We talked about him uh, briefly. Now he would be at the gates. He would be checking in on Esther. And there was this guy of Haman. Now we talked about Haman was the highest ranking of the, all the nobles. Kind of had... Uh, King Xerxes' ear. And, and it was actually law for people to, when, they, when the, the nobles came by, people had to bow and show respect. They had to kneel and show respect to these people uh, of kind of noble character, as you would say, as they walked by. But Haman did not. It says this in chapter 3, all the king's officials would bow before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. For the king had commanded, but Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Now the palace officials at the king's gates asked Mordecai 
Why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but they refused to comply with the order. So he spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct. But, and since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for ways to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So this guy, a little power trip, right? Haman won't bow. He decides, I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to kill all your people. Interesting thing, Mordecai never gives a reason why. It's law, like to bow down. There's a couple of reasons why most scholars would say that, one, they would go, well, Haman wouldn't bow down because it was a form of, you know, idol worship. He, he wouldn't bow down because he saw uh, bowing down as kind of like that. And there's also a theory that Haman was uh, from a kind of a tribe, the, I'm going to see if I can pronounce this right, the Agatites, uh, which is from the Amalekites. Uh, who attacked Israel during their journey to the promised land. And so you could even say Haman was, knew this. They knew, he knew, uh, or Mordecai knew Haman's nationality and was kind of like still holding a grudge that Mordecai hated Haman because of, of who he was. And, and so they're, they're unsure. Uh, there might have been a combination of why Mordecai wouldn't bow of, you know, of idol uh, or because... He just didn't like Ammon uh, because of uh, where he came from. Um, now, like I said, now Haman got uh, kind of King Xerxes' ear. And he ordered King, he asked King Xerxes, listen, I'll give you a whole bunch of money, but will you write a decree to annihilate all the Jewish people? And King Xerxes does this. You keep your money, I'll just do it as a favor. Like, that's the type of king he is. I'm going to annihilate all these people. You just do it. Keep your money. I'll do his favor. Write up a decree. Here's my ring to sign it. Send it out to everybody in the providence and tell them that on this day, you go and find anyone of Jewish descent and slaughter them. And that was the order. To kind of put in our terms, it was March 7th. Uh, and the order was for April 17th of the next year. So it was a, a full year until this order was to take in place. So everyone in the different providence could get ready to fulfill this order. And the Jewish community was devastated. They went into mourning. And Mordecai, being Esther's uncle, started to persuade with Esther for help. To take this to the king, to plead with him. And I, I believe Esther showed a little bit of her you know, humanity showed a little bit of how her fear and worry in chapter 4. It says this, All the king's officials and even the people in the providence know, and this is Esther speaking, that anyone who appears before the king in his inner courts, and the inner court was basically his bedroom, if anyone appears before the inner courts without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter. And the king has not called for me to come into his bedroom for 30 days. And so king... Uh, Esther's kind of like, how, you know, I can't do this. This is, I'm, I'm going to put my neck on the line. Like, I don't know what he's going to do. He hasn't seen me in 30 days. I don't know what he's going to call. And so Mordecai says it very bluntly. In verse 13, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in a palace, you will escape when all the Jews are killed. 
If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just for such a time as this. And then the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered into the inner courts of the palace. Just across from the king's hall, the king was sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner courts, and he welcomed her, held out his golden scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. Esther, knowing her people, knowing the consequences, sticks her neck out on the line, was willing to lay down her life for her people. Does that sound familiar? That the theme of laying down her life for her people was the exact same thing that God did through Jesus. That Jesus came to save us from our sins through laying out his life, <coughs> excuse me, through laying out and taking the punishment that we deserve. As you continue to read, you ultimately find out that Hammond is strung up, that, that, God, or that uh, King Xerxes hear what Hammond was trying to do, and that he was strung up, and then ultimately Mordecai takes Hammond's position. And the king writes a new etiquette. Since the king can't overturn the law, he kind of does something different. He goes, listen, if you're a Jewish descent, that day you can defend yourself, and not only that, but you can take out your enemies that day if, it's, if you want to and defend yourself. And God delivers all the enemies that try to attack the Jewish people that day into their hands. Esther's story is, is one of not only a woman, but she was a teenager, and she fights a different battle than men would fight. That she, she fights this battle from being in a different position and God using her beauty to ultimately redeem his people. And we notice something that Esther doesn't fear men like she fears God. She was willing to lay down her life. It's one of those stories that we can learn a lot from, from her character. And that as we study Esther and we read it, we're like, wow, we want to be like Esther. And that's great. Like, there's a lot of good qualities and characteristics of Esther. But ultimately, as we read this story, this story, without even God being mentioned, points to him points to his plans, points to how God is always in control. So what can we take away from this story? One, God might not be obvious, but he is never absent. In our world, we can, we can still trust God is working out his plans when it seems like he's nowhere in sight. And we can believe that because of the promises that he has made us. Even when it seems like 2020 is spinning out of control and, and weird things keep popping up and crazy things and, and things, even personal things and things on a worldwide keep happening, we can trust that God is still working all things for his good. And that God is not absent. And to believe that God is absent is a complete lie. I'm sure Esther thought God left her and her people a long time ago. I'm sure she had those types of thoughts. And even when God is a mention, we see how God's plan was unfolding. And that's why I kind of believe Esther is one of the most powerful books. 
It's one of the most powerful books because you see God's plan unfolding. And we see how God was still showing favor to his people and still blessing them. And God's fingerprints were all over this. God might not be obvious, but he's never absent. Number two, the book of Esther is not about Esther. It's about God. It's about God. When we read the book, we can totally take some good characteristics about Esther and her loyalty to God and not man and how to be brave. And ultimately, it should cause us to be, but ultimately it should cause us to be in awe of God and the way that he works. It should cause us to worship him, even in the midst of things when it seems hopeless. God's plan is always and will always be unfolding. And number three, the fear of man is tempting, but the fear of God is convincing. The fear of man is tempting, but the fear of God is convincing. We need to trust God's track record. Why was Esther written? So they could look back and see God's faithfulness. They could look back and see the promise and how God came through for them and how God will continue to come through them, through for them and that they can trust God and not have to fear man. We need to, as we study this book and we read this story, we need to take that away, that, that God's promises will always be fulfilled. That even in this world right now, God is still redeeming it. God is still working all things for the good. And that we can trust in him today and trust in his plans and not fear in any man or any, anything in this world, any virus for that case. But we can believe that God is still working. So let me pray. Jesus, you are good. We love you. And God, we thank you for the book of Esther. We thank you for that wonderful woman and, and her boldness and braveness and, and her way that she stuck her neck out on the line and also the way that you just... Have your plans unfold. Let us just be in awe of you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. You are dismissed.